You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Again, this is Annie Rose Malamed, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. I'm joined today by Carol Grant, and we're talking about Tar. This is my new endeavor where I review new movies with various guests. And this is the first review I'm doing of a movie I actually liked uh, before (laughs) I did (laughs) The Whale, which was just awful. Uh, and, uh, Blonde, which, like, I, I can't say I hated, but I also can't say that I loved it. And, uh, the Hell, Hellraiser 2022, which I did not like. Me so, neither, the, yeah. yeah, not a fan. Fan of Jamie Clayton. Uh, oh, yeah, no, of course. Yeah, only good thing about that movie. <laughs> and it's, it's crazy how much of a wasted opportunity that movie was. I know, of, and she looks so good. Yeah, I, I kind of talked about it on uh, on my uh, letterbox, but like basically, it's almost like the gay gentrification of Hellraiser, like turning totally. something that was like icky and about desire into drugs are bad, and that's it. It really and- was. <laughs> it was. Yeah, and. Yeah, we so I did a review of that with Angelica Jade, and neither of us liked it. Uh, so this is great, great writer. Yeah. Love, yeah, love hearing her. Yeah, she's wonderful, and this is the first movie that I've liked that I'm reviewing. And of course, um, there's I have like mixed feelings. You know, it's not a, a perfect film. There's issues with it, which I think we're going to talk about. But it's I still I think it's so compelling 
Um, but before we get into that, Carol, would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, sure, of course. Um, so my name is Carol Grant. I'm primarily a screenwriter currently. I used to do a lot of film criticism stuff, and then I had to like sort of sidestep that in order to really hone in and focus on screenwriting craft and stuff. That being said, I still do get published every now and then on sites like Vice and Little White Lies with the occasional review and essay because, you know, never forget where you came from. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that I also stream video games. I also um, am a frequent guest on the One Piece podcast. I'm also a gigantic weeb, so... Take that for what you will. That's my whole deal. <laughs> I think you're like probably the perfect person to talk to about this film. I like scooped Carol up so fast. On it was Twitter. really fast. Like props to you for, <laughs> for like being so like, oh, no, this is the one. Yeah, like, exactly. Because wow. I had wanted to do a review of Tar and I, I was just sort of like organically waiting until I felt like the the right person came along and when i saw your tweets i was like oh this is it we got to talk about it so mm. lydia tar <laughs> it's mm. the film is the story of lydia tar uh, a fake conductor who a lot of people thought was real before this movie came out and uh, it i think that says more to do with like movie culture at large than it does like quote unquote how stupid people are but no it's just that like because everything has to be fucking based on something everyone's right. like oh well the, the only reason why anyone would bother to make this story is because this actually happened right and it's like it just shows like more of just the dearth of like the film industry's lack of imagination rather than people being rubes or dupes or blah 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 it's just totally more, again as with all things the film industry is at fault. So anyway, totally. by my script, Hollywood, please. <laughs> yeah, and I think like that's definitely something you and I agree on. I think there's this kind of overarching edgelordy kind of discourse about how people are just dumb. And I think that there's like a media literacy issue at play for sure. But I actually oh, for sure, a lot yeah. smarter. But like media literacy can only go as far as like the media that people are able to gain access to. Yeah. Because right. it's like, it's reflective of like the era. So like in the aughts, you've got like very like maximalist media literacy where everyone is like, this movie has the most directing. So this it's the cooler movie. And then like now it's just like, everything's like IP shovelware. And now it's like, what does this say about the brand and right. where this franchise can go? And it's, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. But that's so a true. story for another time that's not related to Lydia Tarr. <laughs> well, Tarr, so it's the story of Lydia Tarr, who's a world famous conductor, is this renowned and towering figure and a first in many ways for women in her field. But throughout the movie, Lydia's life starts to kind of fall apart with these allegations of sexual misconduct, and she's forced to confront those demons as the intersections of her personal life and her career collide. And 
this is Todd Field's first film in, I believe, like 16 years or something. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. His other movies, uh, Little Children and In the Bedroom, were these like chamber drama, family dramas uh, that also got a lot of Oscar buzz. So mm-hmm. did you see In either the Bedroom? Of those? I actually haven't seen either of them, but I've heard many, many things about them and how Todd Field studied under Kubrick himself and was even a bit cast member on Eyes Wide Shut. So he was clearly very chummy with Kubrick, who was, of course, one of the master American Western directors. And and In the Bedroom was like this explosive debut that everyone was like, oh, Todd Field. And then Little Children, his like sophomore was like hyped up and then wound up being more divisive from what I know. And that's what led to such a long hiatus between that and this movie. That's interesting. I didn't know that 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 it being devices is kind of what led to the hiatus. But I I have seen the movie and I did read the book. But that said, Mm. this was years ago when when they both came out. Um, And be interesting to watch it again. I do remember being kind of like, okay, this is like maybe a little too like saccharine for me. Um, But I would be interested to hear your thoughts on it if you ever watch it. Yeah, I mean, saccharine sounds good. I'm extremely into melodramatic stuff. So that's not a negative for me. (laughs) It's really like Cirquean. If you like it, if you like Douglas. Cirque oh, I love Jason Cirque. So yeah. maybe yes. that'll be my thing. Yeah, I think so. And I, 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 it does have Kate Winslet getting like railed on a washing machine, which is oh. definitely a plus. Relatable. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, there was like a, a lot of buzz at the time because she had let her body like quote unquote go. Right. It was one for of the those role. movies. Yeah. 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 So mm. in in other words, like she had some visible wrinkles and like some body fat. So that was <laughs> the uh how she let herself go for that movie. Uh mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett stars as Lydia Tarr, of course. Um and Todd Field basically said that he wrote the role for her. Like there was no other actress yeah, in exactly. mind. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. Oh, um, 100. I can't imagine it working with anyone else. It would just seem almost like like a half measure if you got someone else without that kind of screen presence. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah, she really, I mean, I think the thing that is really um, that I haven't seen a lot of conversation about is how the film plays with Kate Blanchett, the persona, the Kate Blanchett, the mm-hmm. actress, and then Lydia Tarr, this like fake character. Like it's ve- it's obviously, it, it, I feel like I'm not being really articulate, but it Kate Blanchett as a persona is definitely part of the film. Oh, 100%. That, like, the only way this works is if you could totally see why Lydia Tarr has this magnetic presence that make a lot of prospective uh, young students and especially young women want to flock to her. Because who else has that? It's a bisexual icon, Kate Blanchett. 
Exactly. Who's like the subject of like countless lesbian meme pages. Like she she was in Carol, the Todd Haynes movie. She played Carol Aired. She's basically a lesbian icon at this point. Exactly. So she had to be Lydia Tarr, an- another lesbian icon. Yeah, uh, no, no one else could portray the messy gay in film. <laughs> yeah, well and her. I think what was not, I mean, not surprising to me, um, but Todd and Kate kind of both have said in interviews that it doesn't matter that Lydia Tarr is gay. Um, it just is. Uh it's uh, it's not like the point of the film. Um, it's just like a non-factor. And I don't know if that can ever be true. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, actually, because um, on the one hand, they do kind of try to play it as a kind of very casual part of herself. And I think in real life, it's like, oh, yeah, lesbians, cis lesbians especially, have the capacity to be uh, pieces of shit in the ways that Lydia Tarr reveals herself to be throughout the movie. So, I mean, I do appreciate that, like, they don't fall into the trap of, like, oh, but she's still part of this minority and that kind of softens like all of the horrible things that she's done. Like, no, no, like she is wielding this power in a very specific way. But I think the reason why uh, Totfield and Kate think that is because the character itself is written in such a way where Lydia Tarr is a lesbian by way of like, it's clear that she kind of wishes she were a cis man. Yes, yeah. Is which is something that crops up in a lot of the movie it through subtext. Uh because uh so much of this is Lydia Tarr being in a very male dominated field, which is uh, classical music and conducting. And uh you don't really get that kind of figure in in that kind of role. And she even talks about that later in the movie where she talks about how she kind of had to work her way in like a male dominated space and kind of like show herself up. And you get the sense that like, because she believed so hard in herself as someone who kind of transcended her own uh, gender and sexuality, that she was afforded the privileges of a white male figure. It's basically like, I think the reason why it works is that we've seen this kind of thing in real life figures. Like for example, OJ Simpson proclaiming, I'm not black, I'm OJ. And you could tell that Lydia Tarr is the kind of person who will like, in order to make a point, she'll say, oh, I'm a U-Haul lesbian. But to her cohorts, she's like, oh, I'm not a lesbian, I'm Lydia Tarr she's i'm just who i am she feels that she kind of transcends the quote-unquote stereotypes of such a figure and that thus she's allowed certain privileges and you see that throughout the movie where she sort of carries herself with that kind of masculine gait and posture yeah posture and gaze that sort of allows her to sort of control a room that most people would be like, oh, I'm not going to listen to a woman. Uh. And it's like, 
But no, when you see her in action, it's like, oh, she's got such a commanding presence. That's like, oh, of course I'll listen to her. And that's because I feel like Lydia Tarr herself thinks of herself as above the notions of identity. Yeah, I really like your point that she wields that in specific situations. Like when she is trying to one-up her queer student – Right. Exactly. Then all of a sudden she's a U-Haul lesbian. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's like at no point did she at all look like a U-Haul lesbian. But she throws that in there as like a, a garnish on her uh, on her dish to make it so that, oh, I have as much a right to say my thing as you. She basically believes in the idea of oh yeah let's do oppression olympics you know so it's like she's definitely the kind of person who she doesn't believe it unless she needs to win an argument then she's like oh yeah no i'm a lesbian all the way through you know yeah totally also the choice of u-haul lesbian specifically is so odd (laughs) um like she's it's like she's trying to make herself look like more of a down-to-earth gal um in that moment oh yeah it's because throughout the movie she's the most erudite kind of academic figure that you can imagine in fact pretty much all of my friends who are in academia in some light love this movie because it how it perfectly captures that kind of like scholarly academia figure And some of the uh, pretensions that kind of go along with it, especially with a character like Lydia Tarr, who we later learn uh, believes herself to be fraudulent in a lot of certain ways, which I don't know if we're going to get into like a specific point for spoilers, but I would like to get into spoiler territory later on. If that's oh, okay. please. Yeah. If you're, you know, if you're listening to this, I'm like, a, I'm kind of, I'm a very spoilery podcast. So I, okay, cool, you know, okay. if you're listening, you know, and you don't want spoilers, now would be the time to turn it off because I'm also going to be talking about spoilers. Um, but yeah, she's, there's this kind of, speaking of the lesbianism, there's this very uh, Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant vibe. Um, the Fassbender film and uh, this writer who I had never read before but she wrote this really good review on Another Gaze uh, Luna Beller Tardiar kind of you know kind of talks about the men like transposing themselves onto this lesbian identity Um, and uh, her quote here is despite the film's best efforts to make Lydia's lesbianism a non-event It cannot remove sexuality from the equation, both in the film's own narrative logic and in our still homophobic media landscape. The impropriety, the ick factor of Lydia's desire for Olga is inseparable from her lesbianism. Unlike Francesca, who is waiting for Lydia to make her career, but also seems to seek an emotional intimacy from her that was perhaps once more forthcoming. Olga is alluring in her freedom. She is not beholden to Lydia in any way, save through a pure appreciation of her artistry. In this way, the film's decision to tell the Me Too story in a lesbian key shrivels inalctably, I've never heard that word before, into the most tired homophobia. So I actually, I don't know if 
I don't know if I agree that it's like black and white homophobic, um, but I do think that there is something there to be said about um, men sort of like transposing this predatory figure on on which is like such a thing in film history onto the you know the the specifically the cis white lesbian but you and I know from like real world experience that cis white lesbians so often do uphold the patriarchy in especially in these the professional percent. settings yeah especially when cis white lesbians uh start to break bread with the trans exclusionary radical feminist movement. Absolutely. And it's like so a lot of the most powerful figures in that movement are cis white lesbians. And I think that it's extremely fair to sort of paint a lot of these figures as like they don't need to be perfect or anything. And Lydia is gets to be shown as like. I think one thing that the movie does get right in terms of considering like the lesbianism a quote unquote non-issue is that the important thing isn't that Lydia isn't is isn't or isn't queer. It's that she is using her position of power in an immoral kind of way. Like they're way more interested in the sort of um uh what's the word I'm looking for? Um they're a lot more interested in how Lydia sort of predates her gaze onto everyone else around her. And that I feel like in that sense, anyone can be a predator. I think that's like, that shouldn't be something that you should have to say, but it's true. And there's like no one creative people that, doesn't have that kind of capacity in them to do something like that. Especially when a person like her, Lydia Tarr, reaches such a position of power that she upholds that through a lot of these other means, ruining other people's careers, kind of shaming other female creators and queer creators. And uh, you, it kind of shines through a lot that like, they wanted to tell a story not of like a lesbian Me Too person, but of a Me Too person who happens to be lesbian. And I think that in our like modern culture, I think that's a totally valid thing to discuss because we shouldn't walk on eggshells when this kind of thing happens. And you get to the parts where Lydia is kind of found out for the person that she is. And she kind of does get like rightfully um, uh, in terms of like the internet response, you see a lot of Twitter kind of going after her. And a lot of those people happen to be women, but especially when she makes it to New York and she sees just like a big protest of uh, women students and like women in their twenties, millennial women who are going after her because they know that she has like this kind of privilege that they don't. And yeah, I I think obviously it's a very fraught concept, of course, but I think that um, it does work in the context of the movie, even though, again, they aren't able to disentangle the lesbianism from her character. I think the fact that they are more focused on Lydia more as 
an anti-hero rather than like the first gay anti-hero or whatever right is is was i think the right call yeah it, it, i think it makes it uh definitely stronger um and i think that what is sort of implied here is like what we've been saying which is that and what Kate Blanchett even says, she says it's not about an individual as it is about power itself, is the idea of this kind of power in these worlds, in the arts and academia, being inherently white, cis, heteropatriarchal modes of living and interacting and being. Yes, so that, so that even a woman who is as gay, you all gay, as she proclaims to be, she carries herself with the air of a cis white genius man, you know? Yes. And she aligns herself with them, too. I'm thinking particularly mm-hmm. of the scene where she is um, meeting with the retired conductor uh, at, for, for lunch. And um, he, like, sort of in a <laughs> compares being accused of Nazism to, like, being accused of sexual impropriety and... I don't know how yeah, you read he, that scene, but... He basically compares cancel culture to denazification, which I think is the biggest tell in the entire movie, is that, the, is that she's, like, palling around with this old friend of hers. And, you know, the Nazis were not at all fans of gay people at all, and yet he feels totally comfortable saying this kind of thing to Lydia because they're just that chummy and... He probably doesn't even think of her as a gay person or even a woman. He probably just thinks of her as my chum, which a lot of yes. these kind of like fraternal kind of bonds in higher positions kind of have is that if you're part of the crowd, you're part of the crowd, no matter what you seem to be. So, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the look on her face in that scene, I don't know if you agree, but is kind of like who am I aligning myself with here? Like it's almost no, yeah. Like, she she has that moment of like whatever that British show is where the guy goes, "Are we the baddies?" Right, that peep us? show. Are we the baddies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peep show, right. Okay. Yeah, she's like having that moment, which I think you know sort of plays into what Todd Fields himself says, where it's really up to the audience whether we judge Lydia as like a Me Too predator or a victim of cancel culture. Like, it's meant to provoke that conversation. Kate Blanchett says the tension is that you want to like her and you see yourself in some of her actions, which I think that is why the the scene with the student is so effective, though controversial, because I think on some level, like, people sympathize with this idea of, like, um, still, you know, studying the canon and, like, not throwing away Oh, the yeah, of course. Yeah. I... And I also think that's like a valuable thing to talk about because we talked earlier about uh, failures of media literacy and you really can't have good media literacy without at least confronting the canon, even if you don't so much like it. It's like, obviously, like one of my favorite movies about um, uh, the feminine experience just happens to be Rosemary's Baby, which of course was directed- Yeah. Which, of course, was directed by the one and only predator, Roman Polanski. And uh, it's it, that's something that you have to confront, is that you, I think it is possible to sort of judge the film on its own merits, especially because, you know, 
Rowan Polanski isn't the only auteur of that movie. It's so much about Mia Farrow and the source material that it's based on. And, and you can't discount these things. And this is a similar thing with classical music. Honestly, the thing that came to my mind during the Juilliard scene was not like a quote-unquote cancel culture type of moment, but that scene in uh, an early episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where Larry tries to sort of hum a piece of Wagner to his wife Cheryl, and just some random guy in line with him is like, hey, are you Jewish? I don't know how you can be a Jew and talk about the genius of Wagner. Wagner was Hitler's favorite composer and they played Wagner as they were lining up the Jews in concentration camps and he basically accuses Larry of being a self-hating Jew and naturally Larry gets revenge on him by basically hiring an entire orchestra that plays Wagner on the dude's front lawn which you know funny idea but at the same time it's like no yeah it's like we've got these beautiful pieces of music and they are inextricably tied to the sort of social world that they came out of. And you can sort of listen to it because I think if a random person who knew nothing about Wagner listened to something by Wagner would go, oh, that's a very lovely piece of music. They wouldn't immediately go, oh, I can hear the Nazi undertones in this piece of music. Like, no, yeah. that's It's almost that's like just I can kinda... see the Jews lining up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like... But that is something that you discuss afterwards. It's like, hey, like, I think that's sort of the brilliant thing of, of Todd Field choosing to have this movie take place in the world of classical music. Because classical music is so entwined with European Western monoculture. And how when a lot of like, you know, white na- nationalists go like, oh, they're taking like our culture away from us. They tend to like go to roman architecture or like london architecture or classical music that shows like oh yeah meanwhile like all of these lesser races made music with like little bitty drums and uh weird nose flutes whereas we had these grand symphonies and grand concert halls and it's like yeah no there is so much of like a fascist undercurrent in the canon of classical music, but at the same time, no one gives a shit about it who isn't in academia. So it's like, it's something that like obviously needs to be confronted because that's part of media literacy. You need to know what this piece of art comes from while also kind of understanding, okay, so why is this considered genius in the canon today? And I think the one misstep in the Juilliard scene is when uh, the when the student, you know, who proclaims that they are a BIPOC pangender person, which I don't know a single BIPOC pangender person who describes themselves as that, for one thing. <laughs> yeah, and, that was uh, and the like other for thing the audience. When, <laughs> and the other thing is when Lydia gets, like, her big speech against him, he ends it with, like, slamming the piano and going, you're a fucking bitch, which, I mean... I get that, but at the same time, like, it's not super realistic and kind of tips it a little bit toward Lydia's favor. But other than that, though, um, I have met, like, some people that are just like, 
oh, I refuse to watch any Scorsese or Francis Ford Coppola movie because they're about all these bad people, blah, 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 and love to be very sanctimonious about it. So it's like, obviously those people exist. It's just that this character clearly isn't based around these people and is more of like a straw man. So it's a complicated scene because on the one hand, it's extremely effective at what Todd Field and Kate Blanchett we're kind of hoping to provoke, which is it's it's a Rorschach test for the audience and you either align with her or not. And whereas me, I'm watching this and going, I kind of hate both of them. And they're both yeah, kind of wrong and felt. right in their own yeah. ways. Yes. And, but that's because he kind of made the student character a little bit self-righteous and sanctimonious in its own right that... Um, in order to sort of match how Lydia herself is this self-righteous, sanctimonious person with very high beliefs in her own artistry and the artistry of the canon that she devotes her life to. And it's also because, I think because when they are discussing a figure like Mozart or Bach, for example, um, what Lydia Tarr takes most offense from is that this student might be secretly talking about her because she embodies a lot of the characteristics of Bach and feels that she deserves to be a genius on the level of Bach. And if Bach has to be wrung through the coals like this, then by God, I shouldn't either. So yeah, a lot of it is self-projection, which is the best part of it, of that scene, is that she is not coming into this with a like, oh, I'm trying to defend the canon from the woke liberals. It's like so much of that is insecurity in her own right, posturing as this holier than thou academia. Which I think is kind of brilliant because that's, I think, a lot of what old guard white queer people and like, uh, feel like like that. It's a lot of projection when younger, like Gen Z students, uh, critique these things. You know, they're like, "Well, this thing was so important to me, and I see myself in." You're this, basically so. attacking me. That's how yes. you get so much of cancel culture, quote unquote, like hand wringing comes from this immense self defensiveness that just gets activated in the lizard brain part of a lot of us and I even remember like I showed this to my mom and my mom is not the most uh enlightened person politics wise she has a lot of really fucked up views and I remember at first mom was like agreeing with Lydia like during the Juilliard scene and then over the course of the movie she was like oh no wait Lydia's kind of a piece of shit and I think that's the other brilliant thing about that scene is that it it's kind of meant to sort of tip its scales over to Lydia a bit because that's what allows the rug to be pulled from under you as the rest of the movie plays out. There's just so many things that you're saying that I want to respond to because like everything you're saying is so, all of the things that I've been thinking are just so spot on. I mean, like Rosemary's Baby, I I had an episode on that film. It's like a two-parter. Uh, oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah, and that's one of the things that my guest and I talked about was like, you don't have to separate the art from the artist. It just becomes part of the art. Like it just is part of it that Roman Polanski is Roman Polanski and did what he did. And you can't view it 
not through that lens. I think also what you said about um, that, like that this film, it's so interesting that you mention Curb Your Enthusiasm and Wagner because there is like yeah. Judaism as a theme in this film as well. Um, oh, like, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Like she's a, a protege of Mahler. Um Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein. One of those Jews. <laughs> I say as a Jew. She's yeah, a protege of, of Bernstein. Um, and thank you for correcting me. And she is also has lunch with another conductor who's kind of like a nebbishy Jewish cis white guy who like worships her. And she has that whole. Um, That's the uh, com- Mark Strong character, right? Yes. And she has. Okay. That, um, yeah. All right. Yeah. She she says something about how uh, someone ap- approached her about, um, you know, d- how can she play Jewish music when she's not Jewish? And uh, then, there, of course, there's also the conversation about Nazism. And then she also uses the, the like, Jewish concept. Um, uh, what is it? Was it Tishuvah? Uh, that is, she mentions at the beginning of the film during her like you know very after the the listing of her various accolades you know she's talking about yeah the the whole Q and A thing yeah. yeah exactly so that's a theme as well which I think also ties very interestingly into what you're saying about the Western canon of music and the colonialism that bookends the film right like we open with the um, indigenous Peruvian singing that she supposedly studied. And we end with her in the Philippines playing an orchestra for um, Monster Hunter, the video game. So it's... (laughs) I I can't wait to get into that. Yeah. (laughs) Rubbing my hands. It's it's so, um, you know, present in the film. And I don't know if I have like a, a... a, a coherent thought about the uh, the Jewish themes, but it's so like it's just like thrown in there a few times as like a a trope, and um, and, and yeah, it's it's clear to be like very intentional because obviously he's Todd Field is throwing a lot of these very touchy topics into this sort of. Uh, high art world because high art world tries to sort of ignore a lot of the touchy aspects of where it came from and how it got to be so on and so forth um i think one of my uh favorite movies that is about this kind of idea is terrence malick's a hidden life which was woefully ignored by uh film people but it has this really it has this really incredible scene because it's about a guy who uh, it follows the Terrence Malick formula of guy lives in a kind of Edenic kind of state. And then the Eden is slowly stripped away. But it subverts that that thing that Malick does in all of his movies by sort of implying that this Edenic state was always kind of propped up by the fascism of the era because it takes place in a village in Austria and this village, like, as soon as, like, the Nazis come into power, all of a sudden he sees his village start to embrace Nazism fully, and he has this crisis of, is this what my people always were? He then has a talk with a church painter, and 
the church painter goes on this really uh, beautiful monologue about how all all um, archetypal paintings of Jesus on the cross are fraudulent because they do not show the suffering of Jesus. They show Jesus staring solemnly in the distance or up to the heavens. And it sort of takes away from the absolute agony and horror that Jesus went through that like God put him through this ringer for him. And he, and this church painter begins to have a crisis of faith that like what we are, are propagandists and classical music is kind of like the perfect avatar for that kind of discussion on a propaganda of the Western world. Because you listen to it and you just go, wow, no one makes music like this today. And it's like, well, that's because it was a product of this very colonial environment. And uh, her starting off with ethnomusicology on indigenous Peruvians is like the big tell. And I think Field does a really smart thing in not emphasizing the classical music throughout the movie. The film opens with the uh, indigenous music playing through the opening credits. And you actually don't hear a lot of the music throughout the movie. I was expecting it to be a movie filled with classical music playing here and there and everywhere. And it's actually like never really given this like a grand kind of moment of, oh, she's playing it. She's in her element. It's There's a remove to the way that field shoots the uh, practice scenes and the performance scenes as well. And even like when we see her practicing, uh, she seems to get her ideas from suffering. Like she hears a woman screaming in the distance in a park. And instead of helping this person or calling the police, she's like, I'm going to use that in my next piece. And it's like a lot of these things are kind of layering on top of each other to sort of show that... uh, that this kind of world, this kind of world of classical music and Western, especially because it takes place in Berlin, which is a hotbed yes. of European it's fascism. Like, all of this is like built on human suffering. Like that's such exactly. a smart observation that you made where, you know, the scene where she's running in the park, because I was going to ask you what you made of that scene. And that's exactly it. Like she, instead of, the of like oh my god i have to help this person she uses it in in her music yeah she sort of sees everything in her life through a remove just to be like i wonder how good the art is going to be it's it's like there's this one like great comic that was kind of like skewering a lot of people saying like, oh, the pandemic is going to be terrible or the Trump era is going to be terrible. But through all of these hard times comes some of the greatest art. And <laughs> and it just and there was a comic of like it shows like the planes flying over Hiroshima. And there's just a guy who's like below the bomb going, oh, but the art is going to be so good, though. And it's like no one thinks that it's that. Shit's going to be terrible and no one cares how good the art is going to be. And uh, maybe obviously we don't know art. how good art would be in times of peace because we've never had that. So exactly. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so that's one thing that we kind of trick ourselves into thinking, oh, this kind of hardship and suffering is a necessary component of the creation of great art. 
And it's actually like, no, not really. It's just that um, all the great artists were not supported in their lives or were maybe, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Compliant in uh, a lot of the woes and mores of the world at large. That's why it's impossible to talk about cosmic horror and Lovecraftian horror without talking about, um, here's why it's all racist as well. Because exactly, you it's can't baked into that. it. You can't. It's it's very much part of it. You can't separate them. And I think that's. I think that's like where now that I'm thinking about it, probably the Jewish connection as well. Like, you cannot separate the fact that this like Gentile wasp is living in Berlin and playing and getting accolades for a Jewish man's music. Like that's. Very and and buddying up with people who think that denazification and, and that's and that's another thing is uh, is that she's a uh, she's not a composer she's a conductor it would be one thing if Ligatar was an artist in her own right but, but she's not she isn't yeah. she's someone who appropriates the art of the times of the of a certain era. And tries to sort of launder it through this progressive, oh, but now a lesbian woman is doing it. And now it's going to be through this lesbian lens. It's like, no, she's propagating the old guard in her own way. She just thinks that, like, she's going to use it to sort of give herself, like, an air of... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? I blanked on it. Whatever. The point is that. um, Yeah. Yeah. No authority and uh, prestige. Yeah. I think prestige is the right word. Well, Kate Blanchett even said she's very focused on legacy and it estranges her from the making of music. So it's, you know, her biggest fear is that she's going to be like a human metronome (laughs) and she is. And then when she's making her own music, like. It's she's unable to do it like she's completely constipated in that regard. Yeah. It, it's like. So much of her character is inherent on the background that she's kind of um, appropriating something else as her own. Like everything about her career is about um I've taken these great works from Mahler and Bach and Mozart, and I'm going to be the one conducting them. And it's like Leonard Bernstein was a brilliant conductor, of course, but he was also a good composer. He helped compose the entirety of West Side Story and a lot of other great pieces of music. And uh, you can't say the same thing about Lydia Tarr. She is just a really good conductor but what does that mean and that's why she has to like go off on all of these wild tangents in her q a about what kind of zing she brings to conducting in order to sort of like play it off as like more than just being a human metronome because again it's that self-consciousness bubbling up all over again Right. Oh, that's, yeah, it's so true. Or with the part where she's like, my right hand, you know, keeps time, but then the left shapes. It. And it's like, okay, girl, it's just very, <laughs> but it's all very like self-important exactly in the way that this, this ivory tower world is. Um, And 
I'm also thinking of the ways, like you said, like there's parts where, you know, the scene with the student where we're sort of like agreeing with her or like rooting for her almost, like the uh, confrontation with her daughter, Petra's bully. I love Mm. the part where she's like, I'm Petra's father. And like, of course, all the yeah, people that, in the I think that's like, another ah! tell that she thinks yeah. of herself in yeah. a cis male <laughs> totally. lens for sure. Is that she's yeah. like, oh, I'm Petra's father. Didn't you know? Right. Yes. She's got this like very masculine swagger, but she's not butch because that would be too like disarming for the hetero gays. Like she's still like. Uh, you know, kind of got a soft masculine presentation, which I thought was very smart. Um, because I think she's fudge. It, that's yes. the term. It's fudge. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. to to be like fully mask, um, would be like too much for this. Or you know, it would world. maybe be admitting that maybe she might want to be trans, but doesn't want to confront that. Because that's another thing you hear in a lot of, like, the really scummy turfs is they go, I was a tomboy and they would have tried to transition me if I was a tomboy today. Right. <laughs> and it's like, no, but that's something that you should confront. That doesn't necessarily make Seems you Seems like trans, you're thinking about it a something... lot. Yeah. But you seem to be so obsessed with it that yeah. maybe <laughs> yeah. you should untangle that, you know? it's Right, right. Yeah, that that's, you can kind of feel that like Lydia Tar is like I feel so bad for what's happening to JK Rowling that the you things can, that they're she saying would to totally her. side with JK Rowling exactly yeah that, like she's part of that exact same white womanhood kind of god complex you know oh absolutely and at this you know and as queer people like we see that so clearly but then there's also kind of like a delight in seeing this kind of masculine swagger dyke, like Luna oh, Bell or Tardiar says, being like desired and like um, other women like throwing themselves at her. Like there is something like exciting about watching that. Oh, of course, because I think uh, that's one of the things that uh, that article that you linked to me. Um, talks about which is that it would be totally dishonest to sort of see all these feels like why are they going for her she's clearly like rubing them that makes all of her victims like rubes it's like no no you get what the appeal is and I think that's important like you can't have this conversation of because it's mirroring what the discourse on classical music it's like you have to understand the appeal and the quote-unquote genius of it in order to confront why it came from some kind of, like, fucked-up place. It's that these things are kind of inextricably linked together and you can't really disentangle them. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I also think that um, her assistant being played by... uh, uh, Naomi Merlant, who's like a new lesbian icon from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, you know, there's obviously like nods to like lesbian desire here. And, you know, the beginning. Absolutely. It, like you can almost say that it's the ultimate lesbian crossover event. You've got Carol and the Portrait of a Lady on Fire together at last. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's like that's gonna that's gonna bring out the queers. But I, I also like wonder what it's like for straight people to watch this movie. Um, it's I feel like there's probably like they're probably looking at it with a different lens than uh, you and I are. But uh, we I can't help but think of Carol Aird when I'm watching this. Um, yeah, like, and it also speaks to like the messy gay in all of us that looks at her threatening that bully in her in her daughter's school and going, "Yes, queen." Oh my exactly. god! That's yeah, so like cool. that meme Good that's like, you. "Woman does something evil. Her gaze work." <laughs> like, yeah, it, yeah, yeah literally just the uh, Lucille Bluth. Good for her. Kind of exactly. Vibe. <laughs> yeah. And then when you recontextualize it and you're like, oh, God, this is like how she abuses other women, though, that are beneath her, like power wise, like you can see in that scene, like how um, and I think it's a really smart choice to actually never show the abuse, but you can see how that would occur, like you how, how it projects from her. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I'm going to end you. I'm going to ruin you. Like, you can see her saying that. Um, Your discussion of the ending on Twitter is how I found you on Twitter. I'm so grateful I did. Um, So let's summarize and discuss the ending. I said, like, you know, it kind of bookends the colonialism here, bookends the film. And uh, at the end, Lydia is kind of, quote unquote, banished, (laughs) um, excommunicated. And uh, in an effort to continue her career she goes to the philippines to conduct an orchestra that we find out in the final scene which is like such a gag is that it's this um this orchestra that plays video game music for like really hardcore fans so yeah exactly and let's talk about it it. and there there are some people like i got a couple of responses to my tweet thread that were kind of trying to sort of like um go against like what it is and it's like it's like oh the point isn't that like she's like going to this like foreign country it's that she's become a human metronome where like she's literally playing off a click track when she's doing the monster hunter orchestra and it's like no yeah that's also very much part of it and is part of the failure and then there were other people that were like why is this movie dissing on like video game music and i'm like i'm a gamer at heart i love video game music and i think that a lot of japanese video game composers are some of like the closest things we get to like classical music style of genius like yokoshi mamura is my favorite composer of all time because she is heavily inspired by chopin and you hear a lot of chopin in her work for final fantasy and kingdom hearts that being said if you were to go to a kingdom hearts orchestra event it would be considerably less high class because Rather than being at a big concert hall, you're like, you're like composing the music and then conducting the music, I mean. And then all of a sudden, a big screen in the background is showing Mickey Mouse fighting with Goofy right. and anime boys. And, <laughs> and it's like at a cheering, con. Woo! And you know, it's at a it's con not, and everyone's yeah. in cosplay. So it's like, no, like you can appreciate that video game music is awesome. And it's a downgrade for someone like Lydia Tarr. Like, that's not up for debate. I wasn't trying to say that, like, it is a downgrade, even though I think it is a downgrade, but in different ways. But um, beyond that, though, um, the important thing is that, um, for one thing, preceding her trip to the Philippines is she goes back to her childhood home, 
where we find out that Lydia Tarr uh, was originally born as Linda Tarr with two R's. And she's basically kind of aligned with a sort of like Tanya Harding-esque, like, oh, she sort of would have been seen as like some low class, like yeah. white trash kind she's of She's like family. from Queens. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that she sort of like everything about her is such a fraud that she had to like add an accent to her last name to make it sound more European and be embraced by the European classical music elite. And uh, and it's through like that, it's after that moment that we get her um, having a meeting with who are clearly uh, Capcom executives, which I'll get into the whole history of Monster Hunter later. But uh, she has a meeting with Capcom. And I remember when I was showing this movie to my mom, my mom is from uh, Guam and she grew up in Guam and Manila. And uh, as soon as that scene started, she was like, oh, that's Tagalog. They're speaking Tagalog. I understood everything that they were saying. And at that time, when I first watched it, I didn't know it was the Philippines. I thought that it was like some kind of other Southeast Asian country. And that's kind of something that uh, a lot of people have kind of uh, lambasted the film for, is that the way it shoots the Philippines is very, it's kind of all of the Southeast Asian countries at once. Right. Which... It's kind of true. Could be Thailand. But could yeah. It could be Vietnam. Yeah, like exactly. Like, yeah. It's yeah. I also thought it was a uh, Thailand at first, and then hearing from my mom, oh no, that's the Philippines, and then her seeing all of the stuff and like, oh no, that kind of bus was in the Philippines, and I'm like, oh cool, and that's how I found out, and then I saw the interview where Todd Field was saying that he uh, was inspired very much by a trip he took to Manila, and. Uh, the Philippines, I think, as much as any of the other Southeast Asian countries, is rife with the scars of colonialism. Uh, except the scars there are a lot more ancient compared to like Vietnam, because Vietnam, we obviously think about the Vietnam War, and and Laos as well, which is neighboring Vietnam. Uh, there's actually a pretty solid Laotian movie called The Rocket, which um, it's like not super great it's sort of like an inspiring sundancey kind of movie but it does have something really cool which is it's about this kid that wants to make a kind of bottle rocket but the way that he uses that is that he finds like old bomb parts left over from the vietnam war and turns them into these rockets and you get something similar in tar where she's on a river tour in the philippines and they talk about a certain Marlo Brando movie that was shot here, which most people would know is Apocalypse Now. And uh, they shot Apocalypse Now there to sort of mimic uh, Vietnam. And they shot with Filipino actors. And uh, one of the, the tour guide that Tar is riding with says that the, crocodile, the crocodiles that they brought on for the set of that movie are still in the water to this day. They escaped and are now, the ecosystem has been completely changed by the advent of like this movie that was commenting on colonialism, but then wound up doing an accidental colonialism whoopsie doodle. And uh, ecosystem is like, ecological colonialism is something that isn't talked about a lot. California is very much a victim of that. A lot of like the reason why we get so many wildfires in California is because a lot of the agriculture here from like native Californians was through brush fires. 
it was lit it was all desert and they had to like propagate a lot of like the seeds and harvest through brush fires and uh when we turned it into not a desert it's basically the land going no it's a desert fuck you and there's fires breaking out everywhere because it's the land telling us no this is supposed to be a desert and we just completely changed the ecology of this land and Lydia Tar is on this river that has been irrevocably changed by a movie, a piece of art that um, was made by one of the great white filmmakers of all time and uh, managed to do like its own kind of colonialist kind of ecological damage. Accidentally, mind you, but still. Um, And then finally, uh, I don't know how much Todd Field knows about video games, I'd be very interested to pick his brain about that. But um, the the video game that she's composing for is not just a Monster Hunter game. Monster Hunter is a very popular Capcom franchise that started off in like a lot of like uh, handheld uh, works like the PlayStation Portable and the 3D, 3DS. And then eventually made its way to like more like bigger like AAA console games. And Monster Hunter World was the big one that sort of made Monster Hunter into this big cultural behemoth in the West. It was already huge in Japan and China, especially in China and like Asia in general. So the Philippines, I assume, probably has a lot of Monster Hunter fans. But Monster Hunter World was what got it noticed in the West with like Britain and America and Europe. And uh, Monster Hunter World is very interesting because Monster Hunter World has a very specific colonial bent to the narrative of that game. Because in previous Monster Hunter games, you play as like a Monster Hunter, like in like some village, and the village just happens to be in the middle of like a big field of monsters. And you got to kind of like protect the village or like, you know, scavenge, like, you know, for like, as you would for like, you know, the uh, native wildlife, you know. But in Monster Hunter World, because they were like, oh, we want this to be like the big console push that when we're going to give people new monsters, it's like, you're in a new world. Welcome to the new world, the land of opportunity. You're going to like scavenge for new items, new monsters, new plants and fauna and flora. And Japan itself, especially a a company like Capcom, are uh, very much inspired by, like, you know, the colonialist history of that country. Japan started, is one of the biggest colonizers of the Philippines, um, along with America and Spain, were the other two big colonizers of the Philippines. Um, and uh, Japan itself was founded on, like, a lot of uh, Chinese and Taiwanese immigrants coming to the island, where there was an indigenous population of, like, you know, I forget... The term for them, I think it was Aniwa, I forget. It starts with an A. I apologize for butchering this piece of history. I probably should have done more research. But it's founded very much on colonialism. And then post-World War II, post-Hiroshima, um, all of a sudden, uh, Japan became themselves victims of American colonization, but then tried to sort of form that into its own thing through anime which was very much inspired by Western cartoons and Disney, but they found a way to sort of make it distinctly Japanese. 
And Monster Hunter is in that tradition of like anime stylings, even though it's not really an anime game. A lot of like the moves and like the weapons are very anime-esque, very anime-inspired. And uh, this is something in a lot of Japanese video games. Uh, Animal Crossing New Horizons was another Japanese video game that came out that just happened to be like, oh, instead of like going to like a town, you're going to an uncharted island and you're going to form this island into your own personal paradise. So Japanese games kind of have this undercurrent of colonialism in them. But Monster Hunter World especially like really leans into it as you are these brave new explorers taming a new hostile land. And uh, I feel like Todd Field knows this by making that the game that Lydia is conducting for because I don't that can't be by accident because when you have the narration as she's starting the opening notes of her arrangement saying like you are in a new land we're going to like fight for like freedom and survival blah 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 it's like it's saying it all right there it's that she she herself is this sort of person from another land that's come into this quote-unquote new land of opportunity for her that will allow her to kind of um be who she is basically if she stayed in the western world she would have been dragged through the coals but what she does and this is how a lot of colonialism starts in general um uh, colonialism is very much uh impossible to untangle with rape and sex crimes especially because um yeah you have like films like the nightingale which is very much about like rape as like a stand-in for colonialism and how they're kind of one and the same lydia tar is able to get away with sexual abuse by going to a completely different country that is deemed quote-unquote lesser and she's kind of like colonizing it as a land for her own new opportunity, which is something that the Philippines have been used for quite a bit. You see that in like the military base in Guam, how Guam became a uh, United States territory. Well, uh, the in the article I linked you, she says that as well. Tardier says that as well, like that uh, Western culture has molded it by bloody force into a comfortable rest and recreation station. Exactly. There, there's all sorts of like, I am myself the product of like, my dad is a Jewish white guy from Brooklyn. So I'm kind of like in that kind of like half Filipino, half white kind of bent. So I kind of know all about like the appeal that Filipino women have to certain white men. I'm and also the, the great Asian and Jewish agreement. Of... That's that, that's <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but also, um, uh, I don't recommend watching it because it's not like a su- super great at what it's trying to do. But there was that documentary series on HBO called Q Into the Storm, which is about the founders of like 8chan and trying to unmask. Oh, I, I did Q watch that. Was. Yeah, you did yeah. watch that because you know that like. The Watkinses, the owners of 8chan, are just these, like, white nationalist pricks who live in Manila. 
Yes. And it was so weird seeing like this white dude living it up in the Philippines and just like owning his own like store and having all of these like Filipino brides. And like, that's just it's like disgusting. what happens in the Philippines. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what Lydia Tar is propagating when she goes there. It's that if she wants to keep doing what she's doing, if she wants to keep like living her life as an artist, she is willing to sell out her prestige for power. She would rather have the power than the prestige. Like she could have like done what a, lo a lot of her managers were telling her to do. It's like, we could have a new narrative for you. And like, you could apologize and blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, fuck that. I'm going to the other side of the world so that I can continue to sort of like have this position of power over people. And these people happen to be brownish of skin. Just so happens. And uh, you see that kind of in uh, a later scene where she kind of goes to what is implied to be a brothel. Uh, and she sees a woman who reminds her of the woman who killed herself as a result of Lydia's abuse. Yes, and they're displayed and in like an orchestra type arrangement through the exactly. glass. And, uh, and they're sort of like reduced to these numbers and they just go pick a number for yourself. And it's at that moment that Lydia like escapes that area and just sort of wretches in a kind of moment of self-consciousness. And there's arguments of whether like she is genuinely regretful for her past actions and we can argue back and forth on whether that's true or not but i think the more important thing is that she does not change as a result of this self-consciousness it's that thing in bojack horseman where it's like you can't just keep doing shitty things and feel sorry for yourself lydia tar is the classic example of someone who is doing all these shitty things and then she sort of like wretches in the street or like falls like on a staircase and it's like oh woe is me like these urges are ruining my life but that's just how i'm wired and that's just how she kind of goes about it is that human nature her human nature just cannot be changed and if she had to choose between the prestige of the western canon and just having power over people she chooses colonialism which she is the founding? She doesn't really give a fuck about the music. <laughs> yeah, she chooses like the founding, like birth point that this classical music culture was founded on. Is she? She decides to sort of go to like the root of it, which started with ethnomusicography with indigenous Peruvians, and ends with her conducting a Filipino orchestra for a video game that is about conquering the new world and having actual Filipinos cosplaying as these colonists in the audience, which it kind of goes full circle in this kind of beautifully stupid way that, that like, it's not just video games, it's also Monster Hunter and it's the colonial Monster Hunter, which is like, wow. Yeah, That's that wow. had to be like a conscious decision. I read her throwing up in that moment at the massage parlor as 
she's not regretful. She is sick with being confronted with who she really is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that she regrets anything that she does. Um, because like you said, if she did, but she, but in that environment, she sees it so plainly in how the women are reduced to just numbers to pick from, which she very much did all the time with her auditioning process. She just had a cavalcade of women to just pick from and sort of groom in her own sense. Right. It's kind of like, you think you're better than this? This is exactly what you were doing and have always done. Yeah. And and there's a lot you can argue about, like, whether it's portrayal of, like, the Philippines is uh, its own kind of Orientalism, which I think it's kind of hard to sort of disentangle from that because Todd Field is himself, like, a white director shooting the Philippines. But at the same time, I think he's also aware of the history of colonialism. Like, he wouldn't have picked the Philippines from, like, going on a trip to Manila just to be like, I thought it was a nice place. I had a good time there. Like, no, (laughs) It was pretty. He's he's not that kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, that's kind of, like, a question I wanted to ask you is, like, do you – there's two two more things I want to talk about. Do you feel like in – exploring this orientalism do you feel like it's replicating it actually at the end i just like i guess wanted to hear some of your thoughts on that because that's one of the big conversations i wouldn't say it's replicating it it's more just that it just subconsciously reinforces it like it it's just one of those things that like (laughs) it's just kind of irresistible to like white filmmakers when they shoot it like you gotta show like the the huts and like the little tricycles and the and the jungles and especially how in the way that like her river tour like the river very much they didn't really choose like a river that is more similar to like how the philippines is an archipelago made of like all these different islands they instead chose a river that is very much mimicking the amazon river in its look and feel which brings us back to the indigenous peruvian angle and uh, I, it's more trying to, like, make that kind of connection. But at the same time, it's like, it could have been anywhere, you know? Because, honestly, any place that is not Europe or North America is a victim of colonialism through Completely. some or not. Yeah, which is kind of, like, how it ties into Peru. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, though, the, the Philippines... Is not exactly like a uh, super great country for queer people to live in, of course, because, you know, we are the place where Duterte has been uh, doing his whole thing for ages now. And uh, and it's also one of the deadliest countries to go for journalists. So like the Philippines, as they are like victims of colonialism, like they've wound up perpetuating their own kind of fascism as well through these really big right-wing dictators like Duterte or Marcos, all of these kinds of guys that were, of course, maybe CIA-backed in Marcos' case, but that's something for another day. But (laughs) but, uh, beyond that, though, uh, it really could have been anywhere, but I do think it is interesting that he chose the Philippines, and especially them celebrating a Japanese game. 
I mean, it's, it's so on the nose. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, super on the nose. But at the same time, I say this as a Filipino person who's a massive anime freak and weeaboo. So it's not like I'm any better. But at the same time, the symbolism there is so it's complicated. Apparent. It's not. Yeah. It's not a black and white. That thing. that Capcom agreed to this usage of their property right. in this movie. <laughs> Kind of boggles the mind. I want to know how he got away with it. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Capcom, like, is, like, one of the biggest video game companies of all time. They're not a company that you get to, to, like, be in in your movie willy-nilly. I'm very curious how those talks turned out. I'm sure that that they maybe went the way that the talks that Lydia had with them turned out, where they gave her, like, a big basket of flowers and went... Go ahead. Have the <laughs> Right. I mean, great now. promo for them. <laughs> um, I didn't uh, like I didn't know anything about this game. Yeah. It, so many of like the gamer uh, reviewers that and journalists that I follow who like aren't really too into movies, but they would watch Tar and they would be like, wait, Monster Hunter <laughs> at the end of it was like always this little hinge of delight for me. Well, and even as someone who doesn't know anything about video games, like when I saw it in theaters with my girlfriend who also doesn't know anything, we knew what was going on. Like the iconography of it is so strong. And the narration that plays is also like super on the nose as well that like it can help. It it comes with the bluntness of being like a really well-told joke that like, that it's kind of just playing on everyone. It's just like this big, long, dramatic buildup leading to the ultimate punchline, which is that she's not only turned into a human metronome, but that she's a human metronome for maybe the quote-unquote lowest form of art you could do in that in today's cultural climate. There's also something so like jewish humor about that as well like oh it's very uh curb your enthusiasm music plays yes. in the background <laughs> exactly like everything is so well connected all of the threads are really well connected and the other thing i wanted to ask you about was what do you think about the scene where uh lydia drops olga off at her quote-unquote apartment and like how that relates to those dreams that she has where she's like I'm assuming floating on some kind of river in Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, that the dream confuses are, me. The where yeah, she the, drops her off. The dream, the dream imagery just feels like a lot of her existence is very haunted. Like part of like the anxiety throughout the movie isn't just that her life is being ruined, but that she will be found out for who she is. And for her it feels less like, oh, I would hate if this happened to be, but more that it's only a matter of time before all this stuff catches up. And that anxiousness sort of rides through a lot of the dream sequences and dream imagery. Um, The shot of her like on the flaming bed that's floating above the river feels very much reminiscent of Apichapong Wirasethical, the Thai filmmaker, who which brilliant reference to have i must say just like it feels very cemetery of splendor and memoria on top of Mm, everything else um but at the same time um she's someone who like 
I think a lot of Tar is also a ghost story in some sense. The ghost of Krista, this person who killed herself as a result of her actions, is constantly hung in the background. That's also what uh, the scream that she hears in the park is kind of like. Especially because uh, people have pointed this out. Um, the audio that Todd Field used for that scream in the park was Heather Donahue's from the Blair Witch Project, which is the most like haunt one of the most haunted movies you could pick from. Ooh, and chills even thinking yeah, about exactly. it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so I think so much of this is not just that there's some kind of self consciousness, self regret, self guilt, but also that she feels that these aspects of her life are literally going to chase her down at some point. And when they finally do, it's more that like she kind of gives herself over to them. Like the shot of her like on that flaming bed is more just like, it's like she's kind of at peace with everything around her going up in flames in this sort of peaceful, quiet jungle. It's almost like foretelling that she's going to wind up like making peace with who she is in a completely other jungle-esque country that will sort of allow her to sort of just sit in the middle of the wilderness and just let her abuse all of the students that she she needs. So yeah, and it's I guess that's sort of like the the scene where she drops Olga off and then she kind of goes looking for her to return this teddy bear. Exactly, it sees... it turns into like a a haunted house movie in that yeah. scene. It's it, such it a reminded me a lot of a Session dog. 9, yeah. Yes, totally Session 9 vibes. Like, she's that dog that she's running away from. Like, she's just running, constantly running from, like, who Yeah, the really dog is. is almost more of, like, a more of like a hellhound than a dog. Yes. It's really scary. It is really scary. And also, like, why was Olga being dropped off there? It's so, like, Yeah, it, and it's never addressed, which is also, never. like, so, <laughs> yeah. so great. Like, if you had to, like, maybe interpret it literally, you could maybe think, oh, Olga just doesn't want Lydia to know where she actually lives, possibly. That's what but my girlfriend said. I think, I think that's this is a movie that's operating on a certain level of subconsciousness and dream logic that to interpret it literally would be the most boring thing to do. So totally. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually really like not knowing some of these things. Like I like not knowing what was going I, on. There. I love I, the uh, the mystery of it all that like sh- that Lydia herself, we're seeing it through her lens that is itself very unreliable. Yes, that, that's such a good point that we are getting a sort of skewed version of everything to the point that maybe the reason that Juilliard student seems suspiciously like a straw man is because Lydia Tarr kind of sees him as a straw man or i'm right. sorry i should maybe go seize them because they a are a bipoc them. pan gender yeah yeah which, which i mean I don't straw think them is like feels. exactly what the new york times like you they use straw them <laughs> like oh, that's God. yeah oh that's kind of a, a perfect uh, yeah it's yeah. yeah, but um, I mean, I, I I assume that Todd Field casted a cis actor for that scene, but I don't know. Who knows? Maybe maybe they are actually a non-binary student that he actually plucked from wherever. But we'll never know. Well, or maybe we could know, but I'm just I just haven't done the research yet. Well, I really like this idea that a lot of these things are just filtered through like Lydia's like fractured abusive damaged psyche 
Um, yeah, like, especially like, a lot of the, uh, I think the most interesting imagery for me was uh, the uh, the drawings that she encounters throughout the movie, which um, start off as like, you know, uh, they're a sign from Krista and then they seem to pop up over and over again, almost like Krista stalking her. And then when Francesca leaves, she has those same drawings in her abandoned apartment. She almost starts to, it almost has like the feel of like a conspiratorial kind of yes. fever to them. That yes. all these people are turning against me and everyone's out to get me. And which is exactly what people. Big secret cabal. Yeah. Yes. Which is, which is exactly what people who have been like, quote unquote, canceled think is happening to them instead of just like everyone realizing at once that you suck. They think that there's like a, a conspiracy going on. The woke left mob doesn't want people to hear the truth about what I think about people's genitals. Yeah, it's that's what it is. That's they wouldn't want, try to cancel truth. me if I was right, <laughs> or if I was wrong. But I, I forget. Whatever. Who cares about these people? <laughs> yeah, they fucking suck. I, yeah. I hate them so much. Um, and, and I'll and take any and chance that's what's to great rip on them. About Lydia Tar is that. She's awesome, but also she sucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it really gets that dichotomy so well. She's like, she's the messy queer bitch that you kind of aspire to be. And also just she reveals herself sometimes to be kind of dumb as rocks and a piece of shit. And that it's all kind of highfalutin um, academia talk that she's just spewing out of nowhere. It kind of straddles that line so well because there are so many people that like are so smart in some instance but are extremely dumb in another instance. That... I mean, this is reminding me of the Avital Ronell scandal, um, who is the white queer Jewish professor that um, was accused of sexually harassing a gay male student. Um, and she's kind of like a philosophy superstar and when she was accused like Jack Halberstam even was like oh this is like you know go homophobic you know they're just and her defense was like this was a florid like communication between a, a gay woman and a gay man and like you it's can't like the second would, that a smart person gets accused all of a sudden the smartness turns off and the lizard brain turns on which I think is the most accurate thing that this movie just nails about the current moment of quote unquote cancel culture and me too culture is the part where the brain just breaks and they kind of devolve into a parody of themselves, especially as Lydia is, is quite literally tackling people off the stage. If, if they so much as replace her, it's, it really is kind of like that magnificent kind of online Twitter brain. The fact, especially the fact that she name searches herself, that she's not even yes. an online presence, but she just happens to be like, oh, as soon as they're all talking to me, I'm going to use Twitter nonstop. Yes. And no one can stop me. Yeah, it's really, uh, I wish I could talk to you about this for hours. I feel like I have so much more to say. We didn't even talk about like the Venus of the West. Yeah, the mm -hmm. book that she gets. Um, but Carol, where can people find you if you want them to on social media? Oh, well, you can find me on twitter.com slash Carol Avery Grant. All one word, no underscores, no dashes. 
That's Carol Avery Grant. And um, I also have a little WordPress. It is itmecarol.wordpress.com. And uh, over there, if you've ever been curious, hey, what does a weird weeaboo trans girls screenplays look like? Well, you can read some of them over there. I kind of have a selected number of them kind of put up there for people to read and to see. And I'm thinking of maybe putting a couple more in there. Who knows? But yeah, um, there's that. And um, you can also occasionally find me as a guest on the One Piece podcast if you want to hear me talk about more fun subject matter like One Piece. And uh, I'm also uh, occasionally published on Little White Lies as well. And uh, yeah, and if you want to see me throwing shade at other bad queer art, um, I posted (laughs) a review of They Them. They slash them, excuse me. Oh, that, God. That uh, went a... <laughs> Unwatchable. Not super viral, but I did see a lot of, like, queer Twitter sharing it a lot, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad to have met you, Carol. I'm so glad I found Thank you, you on Thank you so Twitter. much for having me on. Thank uh, you for being podcast. on. You got to come back. Um, I so enjoyed this lovely. conversation. Uh, and you know where to find me. Girls Guts Jallo on Instagram. Girls Guts Jall X on Twitter. And uh, Patreon.com slash Girls Guts Jallo. Uh, give me money, please. Uh, support me so I can keep doing this. Oh, and money talking- would be nice right now. Yeah. <laughs> and talking to fucking amazing uh, women like Carol. So... Um, you know, happy International Women's Day, Todd. Yeah, happy International <laughs> Women's Day, Todd. Hooray. <laughs> More lesbian abusers. Yeah.